Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. On today's show, we're going to talk to Tim Kirkton of ESPN, and we're going to talk about the 2021 Bill James Handbook, available for pre-order now. Two of my colleagues, Brian Reese and Alex Vigerman, will tell you about some of the best reading in the book. We're loaded with interesting essays and observations. Just a note that we talked to Tim on Tuesday, and he made a number of references to Monday during the interview. He said last night. Tim Kirkchen is quite simply the baseballingest person at ESPN. I had to invent a word to describe him. You've seen him, heard him, and read him. He's a true everything baseballer. And because the postseason is ever ongoing, I didn't necessarily want to focus on individual games, but on themes. And if you watched him for any length of time, he talks about how closely you have to watch the game. I want to divide this into parts, so I want to start with the most positive part first. Tim, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, let's talk pitching first. Uh, and I guess, uh, what have you seen from the pitching that we have seen this postseason? Mark, the pitching is like nothing I've ever seen on the major league level, therefore anywhere else. I have never, and nor has anyone else, seen velocity like this. I have never seen secondary pitches like this. I've never seen so many guys that no one's ever heard of come out of a bullpen just firing. This started 10 years ago, but seven years ago, Lance Berkman, great hitter, told me, Every night, someone comes out of the bullpen throwing 95 miles an hour, and I've never even heard of him. And that's where we are now. That's why the bullpens are so often used, is that from nowhere, every guy that seems to come up is throwing 97 miles an hour with a slider, with a cutter, with a changeup, with something else. So you wonder why the strikeout rate is where it is. It's because the power pitching that these hitters face on a daily basis. It's just stunning. For instance, I just got a look at Ian Anderson the other night for the first time where I'm actually watching every single pitch. I did the game on the radio with Carl Ravage, and he's throwing 95 miles an hour up in the strike zone with a four-seamer, and then he's throwing a changeup at 89 miles an hour that's darting left, darting right. The Marlins had no chance against that kid, and he's a rookie. That's what I'm seeing on a daily basis here in the postseason. And he's like the eighth or ninth arm that was supposed to be a starter for them this season. That's the thing. They had so many injuries this year. Like the fact that him and some of the other guys that they have have, have come out of somewhat of a, a nowhere uh, is just amazing. So is there something that we should be watching with pitching maybe that we aren't paying attention to? We have to watch location every night, Mark, because I'm telling you, when these guys locate with this stuff, our hitters have zero chance to get a hit. I say it every night on the air. How does anyone get a hit anymore? Well, the only way you can get a hit is if somebody misses location. So that's what we have to watch for. And this is what I've been able to do. The terrible part about doing games from the studio and games on the radio, I'm watching every single pitch on the monitor. So I'm watching movement. And when you miss location, which I saw in the postseason a bunch of times, you miss by a foot, you're dead. These hitters <laughs> are so big. They are so strong. They are so intent on getting a ball in the air. When you miss location, they don't hit a line drive to left field. They hit 120 rows up into the left field seats. So that's what this is all about now. If, they, if these guys with this spectacular stuff execute the location of a pitch, it, it, there's no way you're going to get hit. But if you miss location, 
<laughs> you're going to give up a home run, and that's the game we play now. Walks, strikeouts, and homers. Is, is there something about this that might worry you for the future, though? It worries me a great deal for the future, Mark. I must tell you, I can't tell. This is not me making this observation, even though it is. It's every person I talk to. I mean, Craig Council two years ago told me, you know, our shortstop is a great defensive player. I just wish we got to see him make more plays. But there aren't that many balls put in play these days. So I worry tremendously that my favorite part of every game is the defensive wizardry, especially of our middle infielders. And we just don't get to see it on a regular basis because not enough balls are put in play. Too many walks, too many strikeouts, too many home runs. But if we're going to fix this problem, Mark, we have to go back to the batting cage, the kids who are 12, literally, and say, all right, we're going to teach you another way to hit. We're going to teach you to be a little bit more flexible at the plate. We're going to teach you to hit it over there. We're going to teach you another swing, what Joe Madden calls a B-hack. Like when you're, when you're overmatched, you have to swing a different way just to put a ball in play. That's where I think we need to go. And, yes, as much as I love the game and I love every second of it, I'm worried that this all-or-nothing approach is just too much right now. I want to transition to hitting um, and talk about some of the things related to that. You've already hit on a bunch of them, so let's let's look at it from a, a somewhat of a positive perspective. What have you seen when you watch the game as far as hitting goes uh, when it comes to some of the stars of the game? Every guy on every team is capable of hitting the ball out of the ballpark, Mark. We have had 13 home runs out of the nine spot in the order this postseason. That, of course is a record for any postseason, and we've just started the LCSs and we still have the World Series to go. Austin Riley, perfect example. He hit a cannon shot last night to lead off the ninth inning as the ninth hitter in the game. Nine hitters have more homers in this postseason than cleanup hitters. So that's what I'm seeing on a daily basis is these all these guys can just crush a baseball. You make a mistake with any of them. And they're taking it out of the park. Mike Zanino, you've got to be kidding me. He hit a ball like 900 feet yesterday. He is a relatively easy out. I think we all acknowledge that unless you make a mistake. And then he hits it as far as any man alive. That's what I'm seeing on a daily basis. What I love to see more than anything is I love to watch DJ LeMayhew hit. I love to watch Freddie Freeman hit. They still strike out their share of times. We understand that. But Freddie Freeman's goal every at-bat in batting practice and in a game is to hit a line drive over the shortstop's head. He keeps the ball in the middle of the field. He insists on making contact, even though he doesn't always, because of the overpowering pitching he faces. DJ LeMayu hits the ball to the opposite field more often and better than anyone. That's what I'd like to see from our star players, is someone who goes up there and says, I'm going to put this ball in play because I have to, and I'm not just going to try to get it up in the air. I'm going to hit it really hard somewhere and take my chances. But that obviously is not what we're teaching today, and that worries me a little bit. One of the things that I enjoyed watching in the ALDS, particularly that Yankees-Rays game five, was I think there was a Brett Gardner at bat that went uh, deep in the count. And I've seen a number of hitters work deep counts this postseason. That, I feel, is like one of those things that maybe we should be paying attention to, the guys that are masters at that, that maybe we aren't. Is there something else along those lines that we should be paying attention to with hitting? 
deep counts are great. I mean, deep counts are the reason why we played three hours and 15 minutes on average, basically, and postseason games are four hours because our hitters are not going to swing at that first pitch. And yet we have several hitters in this postseason who are jumping all over the first pitch. George Springer, most notably, he's a great first ball hitter. That's what I'm always watching for. How patient are you going to be? And I think that's the tricky part because you want to make the pitcher work. But if you're going to take strike one, as Christian Yellen swung at the first pitch like 13% of the time this year, and that's one reason he hit 205 is that he was behind in the count 0 and 1 because everybody knows he doesn't swing at the first pitch. And he is a great, great player. But when everyone knows because of the scouting reports that everyone has that he's going to take a strike, you get behind in the count to guys that have this kind of stuff. And I repeat, you have no chance. So that's what I'm always watching for. Who's going to try to ambush a first pitch fastball that they're not going to see the rest of the count? Who's going to wait? Who's going to build up a really deep count and make that pitcher throw a strike? Keep in mind, Mark, this is the other thing that troubles me slightly is our pitchers aren't interested in getting you out on one pitch. They don't want you to hit the ball. They want you to strike out. And quickly, I talked to an, uh, a player last year, a veteran player. This is a terrible story, but I'm going to tell you anyway. He's playing in the minor leagues. This is a major league player who's trying to get back to the big leagues. There's two outs, there's nobody on, and there's an 0-2 count on the hitter. The hitter hits a pop-up into foul territory. The third baseman, this guy, catches it for the third out. After the inning, his pitcher comes over to him and says, why didn't you drop that ball on purpose? I had an 0-2 count. I need to strike this guy out. The only way to get to the big leagues is to have a great strikeout rate. He wanted his own third baseman to intentionally drop a ball so he could get another, potentially another strikeout and get a quicker road to the big leagues. Mark, that, that's a very dangerous precedent there that we're asking our own teammates to intentionally drop a ball so we can strike somebody out because we brainwashed our pitchers into thinking this is my only chance to get there is a great strikeout rate. Never mind, I don't get people out all the time, but when I do get them out, I strike them out, and that's all that's important to some people. Tim, I don't know whether to laugh or cry at that. I, I did both, and your boy Edwin Diaz is the perfect example. Mark, look at his 2019 numbers. I'll be close on this. No one has ever had a strikeout rate like that and an ERA that high ever, not even close and that, that was troublesome. When he gets you out, he strikes you out. But he had a terrible season. He had a ERA way over five. So, yes, I laughed and I cried with that story I just told you. But I think I cried more than I laughed. I want to jump to base running because I think it'll, it'll kind of play along with the laugh and cry kind of aspect of the conversation. And I was looking at stolen bases and triples in the postseason, and, and they're they're both like basically somewhat non-existent. And I've heard you say it on broadcast this year. And this is really not a place where we're going to do the, oh, woe is baseball, boy, that sort of thing. But I've heard you say it, so I do want to address it. This is the worst base running you've ever seen. What's going on there? All right, Mark, uh, let's be clear, abundantly clear one more time. Nobody loves this stuff more than I do. But I feel as an analyst of the game, it's my obligation to point out when something has been done poorly. 
our players are clearly bigger, stronger, faster, and better than ever. No one is disputing that. But they know less about the playing of the game than any time that I've covered, and that's 41 years. I could give you a hundred stories right now of the bad base running that I've seen the last five years since I've been doing games from the booth. I just saw Yandy Diaz the other day on a 3-2 pitch with two outs, not run on a 3-2 pitch <laughs> with two outs. Ten-year-olds know to do that, and he didn't even run. He must have forgotten the count, or someone didn't tell him. That's a dangerous situation. So here's what I think is happening. These players are so physically gifted. They just overpower the game with their physical gifts. And because you're getting paid so much money to do a job, they're thinking, well, why do I need to know all the subtle nuances of the game? Why do I need to know everything about positioning or whatever when I'm going to hit a three-run homer next inning or I throw 100 miles an hour? That's the danger to me is – the little parts of the game have been lost. And this, again, Mark, is not my observation, even though it is. I hear it every day. I, one day I did a game, and I got five text messages, five, from former players saying all the same thing. This is the worst base running I've ever seen. I can't believe that guy just did that. And it's, it's just unacceptable. Look, I can put up with anything. You know this, Mark. You worked with me for a long time. If you strike out, I get it. I don't know how anyone ever gets a hit. If you can't throw the ball over the plate, I get that. And if someone smokes a ground ball to you and it hits your glove and, and caroms off, I get that also. But I do not understand some of the terrible base running that I see on a daily basis. It just doesn't follow. It's a paradox. The players are bigger, stronger, faster, and better than ever. The game should be better than ever. And certain nights, it's not. What is the solution here? Because like a team like the Royals tried to counter that, right? By getting like three super fast guys and it turned out none of them could get on base. How does it, something like that get fixed? I think our managers all have to take their clubs together in spring training and say, look, boys, we're going to work on base running every day. I'm just not sure in the heat of the moment that something that you were told in spring training in February is going to help you in May. But that's our only chance is to have a tutorial with the team virtually every day on the finer points of the game led by base running. But if you just don't have an instinct for that, then I think it's very difficult to learn. I think you either have it or you don't have it. And if you've never had it growing up through high school and even through college, I don't think you're going to go from a player without instincts to a very instinctual player in one year in the big leagues. I don't think it works that way. So we have to start early and start teaching our young kids this is the proper way to run the bases. This is the proper way to play the game. I, I would be remiss if we didn't point out, too, that uh, two of the great base runners of, of, of all time, Major League history, uh, Hall of Famers, Lou Brock uh, and Joe Morgan, both passed away recently in baseball. Uh, who were some of your favorite base runners to watch? What are some of your favorite base running memories? I'm old enough, Mark, to have seen Willie Mays run out of triple. I saw Willie Mays steal a base, many bases. I saw him go first to third, and I'm not sure there's ever been a more breathtaking athlete to play the game than Willie Mays. But it's more than that. Cal Ripken was not a fast man. 
I saw him make one mistake on the bases in the five years that I covered that team every day. One mistake. That was it. He's a great base runner. Scott Rowland, not the fastest guy in the world, one of the smartest, best base runners I've ever seen. So that's what I'm always looking for. Chris Bryant is a great base runner. He has a feel for the game that a lot of players don't. He runs better than people think, but he's a great base runner. That's what I love to watch. I love to watch the fast guys run, but I love to watch the guys who aren't as fast as everyone else who just understand that's a ball I'm going to score on right there. And that really makes me happy when I see that. You mentioned a number of people, certainly Willie Mays included, that allow us to transition to the next and last of the subjects that I wanted to bring up, defense. And I have been very impressed. We are a company that has made its money on defensive metrics, and uh, we have been very impressed with the defense that we've seen this postseason. And I think there are a lot of different elements to that. Uh, When you watch the game, what have you seen defensively? Well, I sure saw the Tampa Bay Rays last night win a game with their defense. Joey Wendell at third, Willie Adamas at shortstop. And granted, the positioning of the Rays was maybe they just got lucky for a night, but every time in this series that the Astros hit a ball on the nose, somebody is standing right there. And I don't think it's a coincidence. They know exactly where people are hitting the ball, and their pitchers are executing it. So he's supposed to hit the ball up the middle here, and there's Willie Adamas standing right behind the bag, or Joey Wendell standing right next to third base. So that's been really impressive to me, and I can't stress this enough, Mark. The defense is is my favorite part of the game, but it's a critical part of the game. I've done all the research on you, you just can't get a bad defensive team and go very far in a, a regular season, and you're simply – not going to win the World Series if you give up some outs. You know, Mark, how the Royals outplayed the Mets in the World Series a few years ago, and I'm sorry, it was in part because the Mets were incapable of making a couple of simple plays that had to be made. Last night, Jose Altuve had two throwing errors. First time in his career he's ever done that. Yuli Gurriel made a play at first base that Mark Teixeira would make 100 times out of 100, and he hasn't played in five years. These are plays that have to be made, and it frustrates me when they're not. But fortunately, because of the amazing athleticism of these guys, those plays are made way more often than not. And I repeat, that makes me really happy. Is there someone in the game right now whose defense you particularly enjoy watching? There are a lot of guys in the game that I love to watch. Mookie Betts in right field made a play last night on a ball that hit down in the corner, and he held Travis Darno to a single. And he fielded that ball off the, off the wall using his bare hand, and he looked like a second baseman, like, turning the double play. And, of course, he used to be a second baseman, and it's stunning to me how great an outfielder he has become when he used to be an infielder. That's not an easy transition. It's easier than being an outfielder and going to the infield, but he is, he is breathtaking to watch um it like last night in the corner and byron buxton i could watch all day i'm not sure there's anything more more enjoyable than watching that guy sprint at full speed left center or right center and catch a ball on the dead run that is a greyhound of greyhounds so i love outfield play i love infield play even more but i love outfield play because so many games are won and lost with a really good defensive outfield and watching Buxton and Mookie Betts, especially, that's really great. One of the paradoxes that I think exists comes in something that, that you talked about, how 
the Rays uh, seem to have every guy positioned just right. And in fact, in the postseason, batting average on balls and play is down. Uh, and it's very tricky to get a ball past someone and to, I, I guess they would, uh, that a lot of teams would say, well, the only way to counter the unpredictability is to try and strike guys out. And that's why we're kind of seeing what we're seeing. Is there anything that can be done to, uh, I guess it goes back to the hitting stuff that you talked about, to make the unpredictability of the game uh, a little bit more uh, lively these days? I don't think there is a quick fix to this. For instance, I was talking to a major league manager the other day who was lamenting people like me who are saying, why can't we hit the ball where nobody is playing? Why can't we just bunt the ball over there? Why can't we hit a hard ground ball to the right side knowing there's nobody playing there? And he makes an excellent point against today's pitching. You have one approach, and that's the problem. You only have one approach. To ask a hitter who's been hitting a certain way for a long time to suddenly change the way he hits and try to get a hit off of Max Scherzer, that simply isn't going to happen. <laughs> So this whole, why don't you just choke up and hit a single to right field? Well, it doesn't work that way either. Not if you're not trained to choke up and hit a single to right field. But that's what I think we need to start to change slowly but surely is making more contact, using the field more, because the shifts are killing so many of these hitters. And they're simply not capable of beating the shift because making that transition in the middle of a major league game is really hard to do. Sounds like what we've got is we've got these, you essentially said it, we've got these incredible athletes and the game has wised up as to how to, to play against them. And, and it's all, baseball's always a game of adjustments. So hopefully the adjustments will be made and continue and we'll see better things in the future. Speaking of better things, all right, let, let's close out with this. Who's a player that you've seen this postseason that you have a greater appreciation for than you did before the, the postseason started? Let's be clear again. I've always liked this guy, but Dansby Swanson gets better every time I see him, and he gets bigger every time I see him. I thought he, first time I met him was his rookie year, and I know he was a big, you know, number one draft choice and all that stuff. But he didn't look like a particularly big guy to me. Now he puts a charge in a ball like well, most shortstops can do that anyway. But he is really bigger and stronger than I can remember. Defensively, he's really good. I think he gets better every day. And most important, Mark, I am so impressed with his baseball IQ. He has a true understanding of how the game is played. And I've just told you for the last 30 minutes, it worries me that some of our young players really don't even know what they're doing, but they do well because of their physical attributes. This guy has physical attributes and a total understanding of what he's doing out there. Cutoffs, relays, he knows where to throw, he's never out of position. So he's the guy I think every time I see him, I thought he was a good player at first, now I think he's a really, really good player, and he gets better every time I see him. Living up to his billing as uh, the number one pick in the country. Tim Kirchin, the baseballingest person at ESPN. As I said, I had to invent a word to describe him. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you, Mark. I enjoyed it. The 2021 edition of the Bill James Handbook is available for order from actasports.com. This year's book features lots of great insights. Bill invented a new stat to measure game score for batters. We look at the impact of the rule changes made in the shortened season and the weird stats that a short year creates. Speaking of stats, we've got lots of them. 
career and year-by-year totals for every major leaguer. Plus, deep dives into defensive runs saved, RBI percentages, shifts, the Hall of Fame, and more. Plus, the first set of hitter and pitcher projections for the 2021 season. That's the Bill James Handbook 2021 edition, available at actosports.com, where you can get 10% off and free shipping. Order today. To close out the show, I thought we'd do a sneak preview of the 2021 Bill James Handbook that you just heard the commercial for. We just sent the book to the publisher on Monday. Two of my colleagues who helped write and edit the book are Alex Digerman and Brian Reef. And Brian, we'll start with you. You had a hand in almost every page of the book in handling the layout and such. Of what you wrote, though, uh, what did you like the most? Hey, Mark. In terms of what I wrote, I think my favorite was the, uh, the intro for the starting pitcher rankings. You and I have talked about it a little, but any chance I get to bring up my dog is an opportunity that I can't really pass up. <laughs> but in addition to that, it's actually one of the only two-page intros that I got to write. So a lot of the times, we try to make sure that there's no extra blank pages at the end of sections. And so I got to spend the data section for this was an even number of pages. I got to write two pages for an intro. And I got to write 600 words rather than 300 words. So I always like finding these, these pitchers who are these players who accomplish things that haven't been done in an X number of years. And so the fact that uh, Garrett Cole, who, who started the season as the number one pitcher and ended the season as the number one pitcher, that was the third time it had been done this century, which I, I found pretty interesting. And of course, him and Cole and DeGrom's battle back and forth to be the number one pitcher this year. They went back and forth during September, I think. The world's greatest number one uh, pitcher is a Bill James invention. Uh, it allows you to look at a pitcher's grand body of work and come up with a ranking. Essentially, he equated it to a like a heavyweight championship kind of ranking. And as you said, uh, Garrett Cole comes out number one. You can see the full list of rankings uh, in the book. All right, uh, among things that you didn't write, what did you find particularly interesting? So one of the favorite things that I found in the book, one of the ones you wrote, Mark, the intro on the, the weirdness of the 2020 major league season. The, my favorite stat, in, I mean, there are a couple of different stats in there. You talk about different players hitting career highs and, and players with batting averages that were lower than expected. Uh, but I think my favorite one was the, uh, the Charlie Blackman split in terms of his first X game, first 28 games and his last 31 games where he, uh, he had above 400 for pretty much the first half of the season. And then people were wondering, oh, is he going to do this? Is he going to, is he going to continue the rest of the way? And then he, he fell off a cliff and hit 200 in his last 31 games and finished at 303, which I'm not sure if that stat has been, has been published elsewhere, but that's the first time I've seen it, and I really enjoyed it. The weirdest 300 season in Major League history, uh, albeit under uh, particularly crazy circumstances, two completely different years in one. Plenty of weirdness to go around in that uh, essay. Uh, Alex Vigderman, among the things that you wrote for the book, uh, what did you find most interesting? Sure. My criterion is similar to Brian's in the sense that we get a little bit more opportunity to flex our writing muscle uh, when the sections allow it. So we had a section on international data because we collect data for both the KBO and the NPB. And there's no defined data that goes with that section. And so the last couple of years when we've written about it, we just have several pages to write whatever we want to some extent. And so I got the opportunity to kind of delve into our new KBO data collection. Obviously, you uh, interviewed Mel Rojas Jr. on the podcast previously. He's sort of been the big breakout star of the KBO this season. And then just sort of shining a light on, on a couple players that are not the guys who you're used to hearing about who, are, who came from the U.S. or have gone back and forth between the U.S. and East Asia. 
and a number of things in that essay, including the ability to look at uh, one of your uh, one of our company's toys that, that you developed, Synthetic Statcast. Yeah, so we obviously Statcast has existed for a few years, and and that's an extension of sort of the TrackMan tracking system that primarily, you know, when people talk about that, they refer to exit velocity and launch angle as the ways of measuring batter performance that we didn't really have before. So we essentially use machine learning and our data that we already are collecting on the quality of contact and that sort of thing to essentially uh, model the exit velocity and launch angle. But because we collect those data points of speed and, and location of batted balls, wherever we collect data, we're able to essentially create these types of measurements for the minor leagues, for Japan, for Korea, for years before StatCast. And so this is sort of just a way to kind of unveil I mean, we've had it for a few years, but to kind of uh, make it a little bit more public, the, the numbers that we're getting out of that system. It's very cool. You get a chance to uh, see some of the numbers that you're familiar with from broadcasts uh, and from articles uh, in this book. Uh, certainly many good things. All right. And Alex, one last thing. Um, something that someone else wrote that you found particularly interesting uh, that's going in the book. Sure. So this is a section that we have sort of dabbled in in a couple of previous books Particularly, we had an article by Sig Meidel, who's, who's sort of run multiple analytics groups and, and organizations uh, in Major League Baseball, talking about injuries and injury risk. And we've been collecting injury data for years, uh, and, and we're only just now starting to do more in terms of like creating models around that data and trying to predict injuries and do a little bit more of advanced research as opposed to just saying we had this many ankle injuries, this many you know concussions, all that kind of thing. And so John Shirley, who did, you know, a lot of the legwork in terms of building the model, also wrote about the kind of results that we're seeing in terms of trying to predict injuries, which, you know, is something that is extraordinarily difficult. And we don't claim to be in any way perfect or, or you know, 100% or even, you know, 70% accurate in, in predicting injuries. But we do a pretty good job in especially handling the prediction of these like high probability injuries, the guys who are really injury prone, we do a pretty good job of uh, predicting whether or not they're going to actually get hurt in that next season. Definitely important. And I think that the fantasy sports community will be particularly interested in the two lists that we have in the book, the one for hitters and especially the one for pitchers who we deem as the highest injury risks going into 2021. Alex, thank you. Uh, Among the other content in the book, I wanted to just touch on before we close out, I'll close. Uh, My favorite essay to write among the ones that I put together for the book uh, was on team efficiencies where we looked at how many runs a team created versus how many they actually scored and how many runs a team allowed versus their expected runs allowed based on a number of components. And what it showed was essentially that the Mets and the Marlins should have completely flipped places for the season, that the Mets, who won a number of games in the mid-20s, should have won in the low 30s, and the Marlins, who got into the playoffs with 31 wins, really should have been a 24-25 win team. So on top of everything that the Marlins went through this season, they overachieved with what they did once they were actually on the field as well. So certainly uh, some craziness there. Uh, That's a fun essay. The team efficiency section of the Bill James Handbook. And one uh, that I wanted to mention, Bill's Pace, which we mentioned in the advertisement, game score for hitters is very cool. One of the discoveries that Bill made is that a hitter's value is clumped into a very small number of games per year. A really good hitter has like 20 or 25 really good games. Uh, and then the rest of the games, the 100 or, or whatever else that he plays, 
he's pretty ordinary. And he uses Ichiro and Mark McGuire as examples. Tony Phillips makes a good cameo. Uh, you'll learn a lot from reading it. And I, uh, I highly suggest that you do read it. And I highly suggest that you do read the book. Actasports.com, you can get 10% off and free shipping. The book comes out November 1st. And this wraps up the SIS Baseball Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review us if you can. For Tim Kirchner, Alex Vigerman, and Brian Reef, and our producer Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.